Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. How you found your purpose in life is what, if you're doing something that you would do it, even if you didn't get paid for it, it means that much to you and that you're just naturally good at it. Like I'm naturally good at writing. I'm naturally good at coaching. Like when I was in the workplace, my favorite part of the job was having conversations with people and coaching people. I never thought I could make it into a profession. It became my profession. It was always going to be my profession. I just didn't realize it. And that being unhappy in your career really forces you in a good way to do some deep dive analysis, to ask yourself who you are, what's important to you, and it puts you on a journey to figure it out that your purpose unfolds over time as you go through the journey. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hi there, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Deborah Brown Volkman. Deborah is the founder of Surpass Your Dreams, Inc. She's a career strategist and provides both career and executive coaching. She's written three books on getting the most for yourself out of your career and at work, as well as a couple books about building your own business or coaching practice. She's an expert in all things career. So I'm thrilled to have her on the Mindful Money podcast. Deborah, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Great, great, great. We're happy to have you. So where do you call home? I'm in New York. I don't want to say Long Island, but I am in Long Island. I've lived here my whole life. I sound New York. I actually, many, many years ago, I took a class in, at New York University on how to get rid of your New York accent. <laughs> and what I realized at the end of the class is I don't want to. A New York accent is amazing. It's fun. It has energy. And that the goal in life and in your career is to truly be yourself. And I know lots of New Yorkers and I have a hard time verbally keeping up with any of them. So I hope to keep up today. Absolutely. <laughs> so just as a kind of a softball here to launch into it, you know, I wanted to ask about what did you learn about money or entrepreneurship when you were growing up? Well, you know, I am the first person in my family to go to college. I am the first person in my family to have a business. So I had, so there, you know, there's a goal oriented piece for me. You know, I learned different lessons. I had a father who never went to college. He didn't graduate high school. He worked for the New York Post. He drove a truck for 49 years. He was the second in line in the union and he made really good money. So on one hand, I had a father who made good money and provided for his family. So I never really went without, but on the other hand, 
I had a mother whose family grew up in the depression. And so she was very afraid of money. So they always, you know, it's like a little bit of this, which is as a generosity piece, but there's also a scarcity piece. And I, you know, earlier in my life, I went back and forth between the two. Can you point to like a single experience, you know, something that happened, you know, as a child that became one of the building blocks of what you might refer to as your money story today? You know, what comes to me really is, you know, my father and how generous he was. Like when I wanted to go to college, you know, he saved for that. Like he took the bonds out of the bank to pay for my school. He said that you will not go, you will, you know, you will not have to pay for that. You will not have to have loans. So I think that that really stuck with me because to go above and beyond for your child like that, which you really didn't have to do, like that was money that he probably could have used to give it to me. You know, he just showed, it just showed me what a generous person it was. And that for me to go and make money as a result of going to college and graduating from school, I was able to give it back to him in so many more ways. And it's, you know, it's a lesson that you can pay forward. It's a lesson that, you know, as you work with people when they, and you know, they've got kids or, you, you know, you can always pay that forward. You can always teach that generosity. And that's an important part of wealth in general or money in general, I think. Yes. Also, I married a man who's very good with money. We have no debt. Oh, nice. We have no debt at all. We've paid off. We have a house. We have a house here in Long Island. We have a house in Arizona. We have a house in Bulgaria. We bought a house on in eBay on eBay in Bulgaria. I've been to Bulgaria like three times. We bought a building, so I'm part owner of a record store. He's paid off the house. He's paid off the cars. Like but to have that intentionality and how he did it was, you know, he had a vision and then he chipped away a little bit at a time. And he has a thing that he won't, he doesn't want to do stuff unless he can pay for it. And not many people, not people do that. And I'm really able to do what I'm able to do in my career because I have such a strong foundation at home. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of talk these days about the difficulties the younger generations, you know, entering the workforce have, you know, they're coming out of college with debt and maybe the jobs aren't as good as they were, or it's hard to find the jobs. So first, do you really think it's harder now than it was to launch, you know, than it was maybe 20, 30 years ago, say when I launched and why is that the case? Well, I mean, I think it's hard to, it's harder to find a job because there's a people component that's missing. You know, at once upon a time, you should take your resume, you would submit it to human resources. There was a human being that, that was reading it. That's not the case. Now it goes through a through a computer system, there's not a person that's reading it. So it's match, no match, match, no match. So I think that the jobs are still there. But, you know, connecting the people, connecting the companies and the people that want that job is really so much more difficult. Huh. It's, I mean, I didn't, I never thought about it that way. But the way you're talking about it, my son is 17. He's going, he's applying to college now. And he's got to apply to 15. I applied to four colleges. I got into three out of four, right? He's got to apply to 15 colleges, hoping to get into one or two. Because it's match, no match. I mean, that's like the new, the reality of matching people up is with a job or with a college or with a partner, you know, because we use technology as an interface that eliminates that. How do I get to know you personally? And do you fit for this job and this team? Can you explore that a little bit more? All right. So what you're talking about right now is the human component that's missing from it, because I think that Generation Z you know, gets a bad rap. You know, they say they don't want to work. I don't think that's true. I think they just have more boundaries. I think 
they are resilient. I mean, they've been through lockdown. They've been through a lot of things. They just, they don't own as many things. They don't want to own it. They don't want to own a house. They don't want to get married. They don't want to buy a car. So they have more freedom and they have more opportunities. So they're able to set more boundaries because they're not tied down. You know, I do wonder what will happen to this generation, you know, once they have families and once they have kids, because when you have kids, things change. They, they really do. Like if you think about, you know, the hippies in the 60s, like they're all free, free, free until, you know, until you have responsibilities when you have responsibilities. I think that, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have a little less courage. Yeah. And so Gen Z, they are the older teenagers, younger 20s now. Is that right? Yes. And they're in the workforce and they're the ones that are quiet quitting. Those are the ones who are saying, I don't want this job. Right. They're saying, I am not going to work you know, forever, I want work-life balance. Like they're saying no, like they're almost an inspiration for us. Cause I mean, I grew up differently. You go to work, you work all the time. You do what your boss tells you to do. If you have to work on weekends, that's what you do. But this generation is saying no to that. I actually think that they're going to pave the way for us to have more courage to say no. Yeah. I mean, those healthy boundaries are probably, you know, important and something that I didn't have. Like I work all the time still. So, so you talk about career planning, as sort of a vital process. First of all, can you define what a career is as opposed to like a job? What's the difference? All right. A job is something you do to pay the bills, right? A career is something that you do that you love. Like it should inspire you. It should light you up. It should get you excited, you know? And I know that you can look at that and say, oh, then, you know, that's pie in the sky. But I think that you should be inspired by the work that you do. And I think it's possible to be inspired by the work that you do. What do you mean by career planning then? Well, planning is, you know, here's what I want, and it's not just going to happen by itself, right? So there is a A to Z component to it. It is, I see it and I want it. So there's three pieces to a plan, which is what do I want? When will I have it by? And how will I get there? And I think you need all pieces. And the, the what is, what do I want? I want a new job. I want a new career. I want to get promoted at work. I want more responsibilities. Whatever it is, if you can't see it, you can't do it. The when. Now, the when is the thing that scares people sometimes because when is when will I get it? And some, you know, people are afraid to say when I'm going to get something because they may or may not get it. But when puts you on the court. So you can say, I will reach my goal in 90 days or 180 days. You may reach it or you may not reach it, but that's not the point. You choose a date, a date puts you on the court, not choosing a date puts you on the sidelines. And then the what, the what is the specific step that you will take to get there. And then there's a whole component of breaking it down into smaller pieces and prioritizing and doing one thing at a time. So I've often heard of that as here, there, and how. Like that's yeah, here, there, there and how. Right? Yes, uh, and that's everything in planning. Even for, you know, financial planning is kind of the same thing. Here, there, how. Right. That's what it's all about. Yes. So let's talk to one of these Gen Z kids. They're not all kids, but let's talk to a Gen Z person for a second. How do they know that they're pursuing the right career for them? Like, how do I, you know, I like math or whatever the thing might be. How do I know that I'm, my ladder is on the right wall? Well, you know, I think for them, it's a little bit easier because there's a whole side hustle piece to this. So they, you know, because they're not so bogged down with the money and having to pay for things, at least initially, that they can go and do you know, what lights them up. So the whole side hustle is I enjoy doing things and I'm just going to do it and maybe it'll hit or maybe it, it won't hit. You know, how you found your purpose in life is what 
if you're doing something that you would do it, even if you didn't get paid for it, it means that much to you and that you're just naturally good at it. Like I'm naturally good at writing. I'm naturally good at coaching. Like when I was in the workplace, my favorite part of the job was having conversations with people and coaching people. I never thought I could make it into a profession. It became my profession. It was always going to be my profession. I just didn't realize it. And that being unhappy in your career really forces you in a good way to do some deep dive analysis, to ask yourself who you are, what's important to you. And it puts you on a journey to figure it out that your purpose unfolds over time as you go through the journey. So do you know, you don't get the end at the beginning. You know, you just get a feeling like this seems interesting to me. So I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to let it unfold over time. And, and there's a consistency. There's a doing things on a regular basis. You know, you if you if you don't give up and you're consistent in your efforts, you absolutely positively will figure it out. But you, it, there's a listening to yourself component that, that's really key here. I think you're pointing to something that's really important. When I talk to so I did this. I did this uh, this call with a bunch of high school students, and they were worried about paying for college, and and they're worried about would they get a job after college, and how would they pay off their debt. And so they're, they're 17, 18 year old kids, right? And they were really worried about the steps that were going to come ten steps from where they were, and mm-hmm. not really grasping with right now you're going to be fine. Right now you're doing this; it will develop into that. So how often do you run into this? You know, I want to have it all figured out now. I got to have answers now. I got another path now. And how do you coach around? hey, you're developing, you're becoming, just allow yourself to become. Yes. Well, if that is something that happens to people, no matter what your age is, we as human beings, we don't like to be out of control. As human beings, we don't like uncertainty. So, and we like to know. So I have, you know, everyone I meet will come to me and say, I want to know 100% that it's going to work out. And you don't get that. You will never get that. You will never, ever, 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 ever. (laughs) <laughs> Ever get that. But what you do get is a feeling. How does it feel? What is my gut telling me when you listen to yourself, things work out? And when you don't listen to yourself, things don't. And I can do like a debrief and analysis with people when they took a job and they knew it was the wrong job for them, but they didn't listen to themselves. When you listen to yourself, it works out. But pretty much when you don't have certainty, you, you just don't like it. It's uncomfortable and you're, hold, you're grasping onto things and it. I think at a certain point you surrender and you recognize that that is not that behavior is not good for you and that you have to let it go and you have to let it unfold because not letting it unfold is, is taking a toll on you. Yeah, that you use the word surrender. That is such a powerful ability. And I think it's out of reach for a lot of folks. You know, they've got to develop the ability to surrender, which is incredible. How- well, nobody wants to surrender. Who wants to surrender? I know. We want to rule. We don't want to surrender. <laughs> So let's take that person who's, you know, they had this, they're starting to have the feeling. They, they kind of see a direction. They, they're, they're feeling like they've, oh, this is the thing I can do. How do they take that thing and then develop a bigger version or a, a sort of a vision for their career? How do they develop that big vision? All right. So are we talking about a job? Like there's a job that I want? Yeah. You know, I had that inkling. I had that feeling. I'm listening to myself. I'm doing this thing. I'm good at it. I enjoy it. How do I take that thing and then turn that into the career vision? Okay. So I, what I ask people to do is to describe it to me. You know, what does it, what does it look like? What does it look like? You know, imagine yourself there. Imagine yourself like if you already have achieved that goal, what does it look like? What are you doing? You know, tell me about your life. Tell me about your career. You know, get them to put themselves in the future. 
so they can see the future. And then we can work back from a logistical standpoint. It's really to asking them why this is so important to them, why they want to do it, like it can't be a should. And it's through that questioning and through that process where they come up with, you know what, this is really important to me. If you can't tell me why it's important to you or why you want to do it, then maybe you're just, this isn't it. Maybe it's a should. So, you know, just go, you know, asking people, why is this important to you? What do you want to do? And how do you see yourself? Gives them the ability to flush it out. And after you go through this process, if it still inspires you, well, then, well, then you have it. Then once you know what to do, then you move into logistics mode. Yeah, I think it's, and this is one of the things that it points to the importance of coaching because you sitting alone in my room or in my office or whatever, I may not know how to ask those questions. I may not know how to develop that idea. And so having a coach sort of pointed out to you, and I've got, you know, I know tons and tons of actually fan, absolutely fantastic coaches and they're all very, very helpful. I've, I have two coaches myself and I've had two coaches for a long, 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 long time. So I believe in it. Absolutely. You know, holding accountable is important. So I want to talk about this idea of being underpaid. You know, there's, I think there's quiet resignation happening. I think that there's people that feel like they deserve more. And I'm just, I'm wondering about that feeling. Is it always the case that they deserve more? Or is in some cases, you know, that feeling is, you know, you haven't done, you haven't put in the work to deserve more. And when you run into someone and they're saying, Hey, I feel like I'm underpaid. How often is it one versus the other? Well, I think it's an internal thing also. You know, I feel like I'm being underpaid. You know, I'm doing great work and I just know internally that I'm not getting paid for it. You know, if you, I mean, there's an outside criteria where you can check, you know, you can look at job descriptions, you can check salary sites, like you can look from an outside perspective to see if you're being underpaid or not being paid enough. But there's an internal thing, which is I, I know that I'm worth so much more. Are there signs I mean, I know there's the feeling internally, I know I'm worth more, but is there signs that you might be underpaid? How would I tell objectively? Yeah, I think that's the external the external research that you would do. Like you have the websites like glassdoor.com and payscale.com. And also job descriptions are starting to have more more pay transparency. Some there's more states. You know, for a long time, a job description has goes into great detail of what they want you to do. I mean, there are times I look at some of these things and I wonder how are people even going to sleep at night? There's so many things on this list. Very, very detailed. But pay, it's not there. So, you know, some of the states are now stepping up and you can see what it is. So you can see that you're being underpaid. Indeed, right now, if you apply indeed.com, if you apply for a job, even if it's not listed, they'll tell you based on what they believe, this is the salary that you should be paid. And it's good to have that outside validation because it gives you a little bit, it just, it gives you a little bit more courage to ask for it. You know, for a long time, like you would know you were being underpaid, like you just knew it, but you didn't really have anything to hold on to. But the research now gives you the ability to walk into someone's office and say, you know, here's what I'm doing and I'm not getting paid enough. And just on a side note, I think that companies did not want to put pay into job descriptions because if I have this job already and I see that it's paying a certain amount of money, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you. And a lot of times people are underpaid and they didn't know it going in, but they'll know it now. Is it normal to be underpaid? I mean, is it 50% of the workforce, 10%, what, you know, I don't know how to even measure that, but uh, is it normal? No, I mean, there's no research that I've come across, but, you know, if you don't know what something costs, and if you don't know what something costs, like, how are you going to know? So you can ask them, 
you know, like if you work with a hiring manager or a recruiter, they'll tell you what the job is paying. If you work with a company, they won't. Mm. So you don't know. So they'll ask you, well, what were you paid at your last job? And I don't think it matters what you were paid in your last job. You only, you want to get paid what the job is paying, what the job is worth. Like if you were a volunteer and you were getting paid nothing, does that mean you get paid nothing again? So, you know, I mean, I don't know from a research perspective, but I do think it's much easier to find out that information now. And I think it's a change for the better. So do you think is in terms of the percentage of the workforce that suffers from being underpaid, do you think it's worse today than it was 10 or 20 years ago? Or do you think the transparency has made it better today than it was 10 or 20 years ago? I think it's better. Oh, great. I think information is power. And if you know and you can research and you can walk into an interview and say someone, an employer will say to you, you know, how much do you want to get paid? And you can say, based on my research, I see the job is paying from this to this. Are you paying this? And you don't have to answer the question. There's no need for you to answer the question of what you paid previously. It makes no difference. Yeah. And I think some states are making it illegal to ask the question. I believe that's the case. I'm not in the same space, but I think I've seen that rule in California specifically. Yeah. But there's really no way to prove that. How do you prove it? No. Right. You're going on a job interview. You really want the job. What are you going to do? Turn them in? Yeah. <laughs> True. So this is an impossible question. And I'm just going to admit that right away. <laughs> okay. Well, I like impossible questions. Is there a reason people are underpaid. I mean, we're talking about transparency, but is there, I mean, who do we blame for this? How much of it is the employer's fault? How much of it is employees are afraid to ask? Or are there systemic reasons like the transparency issue that there's a large swath of people that are underpaid? Okay. So I think that's getting better because of the transparency. I mean, that truly has to make it better. So go back to the question again. That was like a three-part question. (laughs) Yeah. The gist is, who do we blame? Like, who do we blame? Okay. Why is it Why is it so underpaid? Okay. So I think that employees, you know, if you're going on a job interview, there is a, you're not on an equal footing. So the power is not with you. If the power was, is not with you and you really truly want the job, you know, you may give your power away. You don't mean to, but you really truly want the job. If they ask you how much you want, you don't want to blow it. You don't want to blow it. So you may not ask. I think companies not telling you right away you know, what the salary is does put you at a disadvantage. And before all of this pay transparency, I used to, you know, one of the biggest questions I would have with clients is when they ask me this question, what do I say? And, you know, back then I would say, well, tell the truth. I mean, you can't go into your savings. You can't go into your savings to have a job. Tell them what you want. Tell them the truth. But still they were afraid. You know, there was a lot of fear there. Companies have the power and, you know, they can hire you or not hire you. A lot of times if you don't get the job, they don't tell you why. And, you know, so I just think that the power is imbalanced and that's where the problem began. Are there any so it, employers, and this, this goes back to sort of the fundamental nature of the job interview, right? The, the employer wants somebody to do that whole list of things that is in the job listing, right? And they want to pay someone as little as possible to do that. Yeah. An employee wants to do those things, but wants to get paid as much as possible. So there's that unequal footing in that conversation sort of ends with a systemic underpayment, right? Because the power lies with the employers in the, because I can, as an employer, I'm interviewing three people. I can offer all three of them the same job. And the one that, you know, accepts the lowest offer is the one that I might hire, right? Is that kind of the sense? So let me play a little devil's advocate because as a business owner, like I want to hire people that 
thrive, that are excited to come to work, that want to do great work. And I think that if I get the person that's just an incredible employee, I want to you know work with them and I want to pay them more because I want to keep them because they're awesome, right? Yes, that's right. So there seems to be a systemic issue with how we get these jobs and some of this transparency is part of it. But how do you bridge that fundamental conversation between an employer and employee so that you know the employee can ask what they want and the employer can get what they want? Because I think we all are better off when we're working together than we're working in opposition. Yeah, I think that the transparency, I think that the pay transparency, having access to information, getting a sense of what other companies are paying, you know, what's the average across industries and in the field, you know, it, based on your state really truly makes a difference. I think it gives you more confidence to go in there and ask and ask for what you want. Yeah. Let's talk to the person that is underpaid. What do they do? Like what do you recommend that they do? Okay. You know, I know I keep coming back to this research piece, but I think that information is power and it's really important. You know, if you came to me and said, I'm getting underpaid, I'd say, well, you know, let's take a look, you know, get on some of this. Number one is get some job descriptions so you can get a sense of, you know, what you're doing, right? And are you still doing what you first came? Like when you first start a job, you have a list of duties and responsibilities and over time it grows and you are doing more things. So you should get paid for, paid for that. So here's what I was doing in the beginning. Here's what I'm doing now. I'm doing a different job. And then it really is the salary information that you find where you can say, well, I've done my research. This is what this job is worth. This is what this job is paying. You know, it could be that I've done some internal research and this is what you're paying in different areas or different departments in this company, I deserve this and I'm making that request. So what if you do that research and you find out, you know what, for the job I'm doing, I'm actually kind of reasonably paid. Do you pivot to a new career? Do you ask for more responsibility? What's the step in that case? Yeah. I mean, if you're getting paid at the top, then you wouldn't say anything. You probably wouldn't say anything. You wouldn't say anything, but if you want more money, then it's exactly what you said. It's like, okay, what's the next job? So let's say you're a manager and you want to get more paid more money and you research some senior manager roles, you know, then we would talk about it. A lot of times the work I do with clients, we take the job description and we go through it line by line. What can you do? What could you learn? And experience comes from different places. Experience comes from work. It comes from education. It comes from hobbies. It comes from volunteering. How can you fill in the gaps? So you can go to your boss and say, I really, truly am doing the work of a senior manager. I would like, not only do I want the raise, but I really would like that promotion. Is it as, so you've done the research, you've analyzed it, you've determined that you deserve a raise, you're doing a different job. Is it really as simple as asking for more? I mean, yeah, and then so how do I ask? Well, I think, you know, in order for your boss, like let's say you're working in a, in a larger company, in order for your boss to say yes to this, like if you have a conversation with your boss, he or she is probably not going to say yes in the moment. They don't have the power to do that. But they would want to take the information and bring it to their boss, you know, or bring it to somebody else to make the case. So you will need as much information as possible. If you're doing some research with the salary sites, you want to bring it in here here's the proof. Here's my research. Here's the job descriptions. Here's a list of what I was doing initially. Here's what I'm doing now to present it. So your boss can go in and make that case for you. Are there, I'm just curious, do you ever run into people, you look at them and say, you know, objectively you deserve to get paid more, but they have a hard time believing that they deserve to get paid more. 
Yes. Well, I mean, there is an asking component and there also is how you grew up around money. Like at the beginning of this conversation, you said, what's your views on money? You know, I mean, for me, you know, I had money. So I, I did. So I'm confident that, you know, I will always have money because I had money. But if I didn't have money, you know, I might be in more survival mode when it comes to money. I might be in survival mode in other areas of my life, but I don't feel that way around money because I didn't grow up that way. So it does make a difference. Your upbringing, your background absolutely positively makes a difference. And I do think there's a fear. There's a fear of asking because you might get no and you don't want, you don't want to hear no. You don't want to be rejected. But I think that there's a self-worth piece and a confidence piece that gets increased when you recognize what you're worth and you go in there and you ask for it. And just because you ask doesn't mean you're going to get it, but at least you asked, at least you gave it a best shot. And then you can decide, is this the right company for me? You know, should I go somewhere else? And you've done all this work, you've done all this research. So now you can go and get another job and confidently ask for what you want because you know, you know what you deserve. There must be an emotional piece in this. Like there must be sort of a psychological how do you empower somebody who has a hard time making that ask to actually make that effort? I know it's do the research, you have the data, but then there's this emotional hurdle, you know, to going in and making the ask because you're scared, you, you know, psychologically they have the power. How do I, so how do you empower them? Well, I let them talk, right? So I believe that people don't do things for two reasons. One, they're afraid of something. And the second is they don't know how to do it. I never start with logistics. Logistics is, you know, the research and how you can do this. I talk, We talk about fear. What are you afraid of? You know, and then I'll just say, what else are you afraid of? Well, what else? What else are you afraid of? And, you know, fear only has power over you when it's a secret, Right. So getting it out, believe it or not, getting it out and saying it is how it goes away. Because as people are saying, what else? What else? What else? Then what they start to say to me is, you know what? What am I afraid of? Or, oh, it sounds so ridiculous. But when it's in here, it holds you back. When you say it and it gets out, it it just disappears. It disappears. And then once you're not afraid anymore, you know, then you can move into logistics mode. But I don't start with logistics because you can't. If you're afraid, it doesn't. I mean, I could actually walk into your office, your boss's office, and ask for you. It doesn't make a difference. It, it won't work, you know, unless you're no longer afraid or it's out. Once it's out, you're like, okay, let's rock and roll. So, so what are fears? Like, what are they? What are people afraid of? No, we're gonna hear no. Yeah, I mean that they might find out. So, they might, I think that they're afraid of what they're gonna hear. So, I believe I'm doing a good job. Maybe my boss will say I'm not doing a good job. Maybe sometimes I feel like an imposter and that is going to be validated for me. Maybe if I ask, especially on a job interview, I'm going to lose the role. I really want this role. This is my dream company. This is where I want to work. It's I'm going to blow it and I'm going to lose something and it's going to be my fault. And is there, does that happen? I mean, if you do, are there instances or is there stories about people who have, you know, been in the job interview and asked for too much. And then they, they've said, well, we're never going to hire you for that. I mean, or is it usually. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, people have lost roles yeah. over it, you know, but as you know, I was saying earlier, you can't go into savings. Right. You can't go into savings. You can't get paid. Like you need a certain amount of money and you don't want to underpay an employee. Like you can get it and you're like, oh, well, you know, I got that person for less money, but there's always going to be something missing. You're not going to start this job 
in a great way. Like you're almost, you just, you're not going to feel good. And if you're not going to feel good, you're not going to put your all into this job and you'll probably go and look for another job because you don't really truly feel appreciated. Like, do you just know, like if you want, let's say $75,000 and they talk you down to 70,000, you know, there's always going to be something missing for you. You are not going to give your best. If you want 75 and they give you 80, you are going to rise for that job. You're going to go above and beyond. They're going to get so much more than that $5,000, you know, by giving you a little bit more. Yeah. And it's almost always better if the employer surprises on the upside. I mean, in, in, in my experience, you get a lot more out of your employees if you're not waiting for them to ask, if you're noticing, hey, you did a great job on this. Let's increase your compensation if you, right? Because you're going to get, they're going to be much more excited to come to work. They're not going to be worried about make, you know, making ends meet because you're surprising on the upside as an employer. Well, I mean, imagine, you know, imagine your boss comes to you and says, I went to bat for you. Like you, I'm giving you a, a great review. I'm going to bat for you. And, you know, across the board, it was a 4% raise, but you're getting 5%. You're getting 6%. You know, I fought for you. You know, whether you're, you might not be happy with the 6%, like maybe you want 10% because it's what you said earlier. Employees will always want more. I mean, I mean, that's it. We always want more. But to have someone come to you and say, I went to bat and I did the best that I could, you know, there's a, a loyalty factor that you will have in this person. So three of your books are about, you know, getting more out of work and two of them are, are about, you know, sort of your side hustle or building something yourself. Is, is that intentional? You know, do you work with people and say, it starts off trying to get you better, better job, better work, better compensation. And then if it doesn't work out, hey, there's this other option or both at the same time, or how did you come up with those sort of two different buckets? Well, I mean, for me, for me, I'm a career and executive coach. I help people find new jobs, new careers and challenges in the workplace. Right. The workplace was challenging for me. You know, I thought I thought it was a little a little crazy. And um, it was crazy. The workplace is a little crazy. So I said, I'm going to find a career I love. I'm going to find a career I love. And then I'm going to help other people do the same. And that really was the basis for, for all of this. The, you know, the umbrella for me is career. So, so, you know, some of my books are around getting a new job and some of them are around a new career. So where you are in the spectrum is in, is in different places. Sometimes you have a job and you want to continue working for someone else. Sometimes you want to work for yourself. Sometimes you're working for yourself and you want to go, want to go back in. So a lot of my work and a lot of my writing really is around covering the basis, you know, around, around those things. And, and you're, I mean, you're an entrepreneur yourself, you know, you have a coaching yes. business. And I think you also said, and I read this somewhere as well, that you're a partner in a, in a vinyl record store. Is that true? Yes. Yes. So I'm a co-owner. My husband, my husband loves records. Uh, we bought a building, which is paid off, completely paid off. He, he has the iFundMe. He believes in iFund, iFundMe. So while he was working, he bought the building and paid it off and, and refurbished it. Uh, so at a certain point, he's going to retire and he wants to work in the record store full full time. But it was a very smart thing that he did. So the downstairs is the record store and upstairs is two apartments. So it's in, it's income generating. So it's a, it's a great idea. And it's only open on Sundays because he's, he's a lawyer during the week and he's a record store owner on the weekends. So, and, and I'm co I'm co-owner, I'm co co-chief of, of vinyl. And it's like two different worlds. Like the record store people are cool. They come in and they tell you story, like music, you know, brings you back to a certain time and a certain memory. And people come in, they just, they share their memories they share their dreams. They tell you about a concert that they, that they've been in. I think it makes, 
it makes our marriage more interesting. And I think it just, it makes life just a, a little bit more interesting. Uh, this is, this is a bit of an aside from our conversation, but <clears throat> I have a couple clients that are, I think one client's got like 15,000 records and I'm like, wow. And I'm sure your husband's kind of the same, right? There's just so many records. And if you have a store, cool. You know, vinyl is, vinyl's kind of coming back too. So it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a sexy hobby as well as having a small business with it. It's pretty neat. Yeah. yeah Cause you know, during COVID we, we had, we had a shutdown, which, which was okay. I mean, that, I mean, that's, that's what we did. But then when we reopened up uh, around Christmas time, a lot of people got record players. So it's like the business afterwards just opened up because so many people had it. But there was, you know, there was a lot of vinyl and then vinyl stopped. And there's a whole period of, of time where you can't get a record. Like you have, they only did CDs. So if you want a record or something, you can't get it because it just didn't make it. And now what they're redoing is they're, they're, they're repressing it. They're repressing it. But I mean, look that, look at that for career planning. He is a, a lawyer by day. He does the record store only. It's only open on Sundays. From, from 11 to 5, and that the goal, since he paid down his debt, you know, and our debt, you know, is to segue, you know, into the record store. The record store is already up. It's already built. It's already making money. Everything's paid down. So he will be able to shift into a different type of career for him because of all of that financial planning. Yep. That's career downsizing. I love it. Into something you want to do and love to do more, right? That's great. Yeah. So- let, let's, uh, I want to actually give somebody some actionable steps and, I, and we've already given them a lot of actionable steps, but I want to get really specific. If someone listening to the podcast says, Hey, you know what? I'm underpaid and, and I I'm right now I'm going to start doing something about it. What's the first thing they should do to ensure that the, that the process of negotiating a higher salary or beginning the conversation about a higher salary goes well. Okay. You, you, you have to do your legwork. You have to do your legwork. You have to do your research. You want to get a sense of what you're doing and what it's worth in the marketplace. Number one thing to do. You can't ask if you don't know from a confidence standpoint, it, you know, your confidence will be higher. I can't say you won't be a little afraid going in and having the conversation, but you'll be armed with information. And there's honest to this. Most people don't look and they don't know what they're worth. When you take a look and see that you're worth so much more, that is going to give you the motivation to do something about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great advice. And is there something that maybe industries talk about or there's books written about that, pe- that people think they should do that they should just simply not do? They should ignore that advice in this conversation. Yeah. I don't know how many think about that. Yeah. Okay. As we get closer here to wrap, what are you working on now? Are you a book in the work? Uh, in the works? You, what's, what are you working on? I have launched a online career goals program uh, is called I am serious about reaching my career goals when you are serious and ready to do the work this program is for you it's an online program there's lessons there's videos but there's a strong support and accountability piece we should not be reaching goals by ourselves it is very difficult to do it by yourself don't do it so it has weekly zoom conversations it has live office hours it has support and you learn when I have a goal and it means a lot to me, but I'm not doing the work, this is the program for you. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Uh, no questions before we wrap. What was the last thing you changed your mind about? The last thing I changed my mind about. I'm 57. I started doing videos and posting things to social media when I was 56. It's very difficult to be seen in the world of social media. My biggest competition when it comes to posting videos is this. It's your finger because woof. <laughs> You know, this is pretty, pretty deep competition. So 
I go back and forth a lot. Should I stop? And I just went through that again. You know, should I stop doing this? And I was going to stop. And I changed my mind and said, I will not. And have some traction? I want to develop more traction? Or what's the what made you change your mind? Because I have a message that I want to share with the world. And it's not really about me. And, you know, I feel like I'm doing the work that I was born to do. And I want other people to do the work that they're born to do. So if I let this stop me, this finger, you know, then I'm not really fulfilling my purpose in life. It's, it's really what I've come to realize is it's not really about me. It's a lesson we all need to learn. I've learned that one recently as well. That's good. So the, the last thing is, is there anything people don't know about you or maybe you've told them and they forgot that you really want them to know about you, something that's important about you? I put my heart and soul into my work. I'm not just another, you know, career coach. I know there's so many career coaches out there. You know, I am great at what I do, but I love what I do. And I wish that more people, you know, would give me a chance. You know, give me a chance. And I think that they would be pleasantly surprised. I think in my world and career coaches, people have had bad experiences. And I think that sometimes I get the brunt of that. And that I would like people to, like it's falling off a horse, to pick yourself up and to try again. Because reaching goals by yourself, it doesn't work. And it's very, very difficult. And you don't have to do that. And you don't want to do that. And that you meet the people that you're meant to meet for a reason. And don't talk yourself out of it. You know, people I meet, they come to my website and they say, I don't know, there's something about you. Like, you know, go with that. The universe is, you ask for help and you ask for an answer. The universe sends you those people. So when they send you, you know, me or they send them you, you know, you know, go, go with it. Don't let your fear or your apprehension or bad experiences, you know, keep you from going in the direction that life is taking you. So pretend for a second that somebody did hear this and they were like, okay, I want to reach out and talk to Deborah. How do they do that? How do they connect with you? Oh, I like that segue. So they can go to my website, which is surpassyourdreams.com. You know, we have lots of, you know, lots of information there. You can sign up for a complimentary conversation and we can just talk about your situation. It's a non-pitch. I don't like to be pitched. There's no 10% off if you sign up in the next 24 hours. I don't like it. I don't do it. It's an opportunity to really talk and, you know, get a sense of, you know, what's next for you. It's like, why not have a conversation? You can hire me for an hour. It's like, why not? You know, why not? Yeah. Well, we'll make sure all that stuff's in the show notes so that people get path, including the course, the supported course you talked about a little bit earlier. And uh, I'd say thank you for coming on and, and a resource for folks listening to the podcast. I appreciate it. This was great. You were doing great work in the world and it was an honor to be here. Thank you, Deborah. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.